Hi, Victoria. How are you? Hey, Katarina. I'm well, thank you. So I'm just, you know, I'm just arriving to the school and then I'll get in a space where I can speak. Yep. Better. Perfect. We still have time. So, yeah, yeah. Good. How are you doing? Good, good. Thank you. Everything is okay. good. Good. Well, I'm just going to navigate for a minute silently and I'll be back soon. Yep. Yeah, I will post a folder with a presentation and so on. So talk in a minute. <laughs> Hi everyone, um, today the quite famous Dr. Feldman is coming here um, and I posted the folder and I will repeat the information later with um, a few files, PowerPoint files um, because the presentation is, is big with, with animations and so on so uh, I had to kind of split up the PowerPoint in um, in four files. So in the title are the slide numbers. So when we move along, you would need to switch to the next uh, PowerPoint file. But I'll I'll repeat this information later on. Thank you. Hi everyone, uh, we will be starting in a few minutes. Um, Dr. Feldman, he's a quite 
a famous neuroscientist who created the field uh, that we will be talking about today. He discovered the brain regions that are responsible for breathing and how they influence different um, other brain regions. Um, and um, yeah, he did a lot of pioneering work and he, since he's also a medical doctor who sees patients, he also applies this knowledge for health. So um, yeah, he's um, a really um, very nice and also very prominent neuroscientist. So I'm really looking forward to this discussion and we will start soon. And um, I posted a folder link because the presentation was quite big so I wouldn't just open and I put in the file names the slide numbers uh, so along the presentation you would need to um, click on the next file uh, to follow along um, and that way it will work out so <laughs> uh, there are like animations in there and so on which makes the file relatively heavy um, yeah, and in the chat, um, feel free to check out the paper also that was like a review that was recently published and um, also Dr. Feldman's professor. Oh, thank you, Robert. Sure. Um, thanks for stopping by and we will start. Thank you. Yeah, in the meantime, if you have a, a chance to look up Dr. Feldman, um, he also wrote books um, and there are links um, where he was interviewed before um, that I will just share really quick in the chat also. Um, he has a BBC interview um, that he shared with me um, that is really good. And also uh, the Huberman Lab podcast. Not sure if you know about that one where he was interviewed too, which are quite interesting to check out too. Share it in the chat. <clears throat> if you want to later on follow up and, and dive deeper into uh, his work, which is really interesting. Hi Jack, how are you? Uh, can you hear us? So to unmute, there should be a microphone button 
all the way on the bottom right corner. Can yes. you hear me now? Yes. Okay. okay. Perfect. How are you? Okay. Okay, great. And uh, we're, we're just audio, right? There's no video. No, there, yeah, there's no video. And um, I, so on top of the room is um, a link to the Google folder I created uh, for the presentation. But since it's not a screen share, feel free to, um, I don't know if you need to look at the slides we're presenting to um, to use your own um, computer to look at the slides separately from this Clubhouse app because everyone will access uh, the PowerPoint through these links here. Through the okay, link. so, uh, so how do I get them to the right uh, image? Uh, so it's um, really helpful to um, say, like when you switch slides that we are going to the next slide or maybe the slide number to mention it. Um, and people are quite used to it uh, here on, like if they come to this club. Um, so it shouldn't be an issue. Uh, the thing was, the file was, was quite uh, big. So what I did, and I hope that's okay with you, I split the um, PowerPoint file in like chunks of around 30 slides so um okay and then i put in the title which slide numbers are so, so do you want me to to run through the slides or we're just gonna go sort of sort of a q a um usually a mixture of both works well so people that don't know your work really well that they can you know they get a little bit but it's really up to you we can also do um, and, then usually, and then usually more the second half would be more like a discussion question because um, i didn't really prepare a like a powerpoint talk i thought we were going to have mostly a q a and these okay. were just sort of supplemental um and uh i could also run through the slides i mean it, it uh, whatever you prefer whatever the, your listeners prefer um yeah I mean, both, as I said, both works really well. Um, maybe like a broad overview of the brain regions and like. All right, so probably the best thing is to let me go through a couple of slides and then uh, we'll determine whether or not uh, we should continue or go to Q&A. Okay, perfect. And before okay. we do that, we usually, if it's okay with you, I'll introduce you a little bit to, um, to the audience and then Victoria usually asks like a couple of uh, broader interview questions and then we go into uh, your research if that's if that's good with you. Whatever you want. I'm here to do what you <laughs> feel is optimal. Sure. Perfect. So uh, welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome to you Jack. Um, we are so grateful that you made time to come here. Um, this is really uh, wonderful and your work is so interesting. Um, but before we start, um, just in case uh, somebody doesn't know, uh, Dr. Jack Feldman, he's a professor in neurobiology at the University of California in Los Angeles. And um, he, um, 
he really started the field um, of neuroscience and breathing and discovered the brain regions that are responsible for breathing and how um, this breathing patterns and the neurons um, that elicit basically uh, breathing, how they are interconnected with other brain regions and how they also kind of um, change behaviors. And, and um, he did that with really uh, modern neuroscience techniques such as wholesale patch clamping recording techniques um, to really deep dive into the cellular mechanisms and the synaptic properties and also synaptic interactions. So um, yeah, Professor Feldman, um, he's also a medical doctor and he really um, made that, yeah, as I said, um, an, completely change our understanding of the neural control of breathing and made uh, groundbreaking discoveries um, that um, how respiratory rhythms are generated. So thank you so much for coming again. And uh, Victoria, I'll hand over the microphone to you. Thanks. All right, thank you so much. And uh, before I begin, uh, I want to say hello. Hello, Jack. Hello, Katarina. Hello. And, hi, can you both hear me okay? Yes. Yes. Okay, fantastic. All right, so yes, welcome, Jack. Katarina and I were especially excited and interested to come upon your research, and then just knowing that you were going to be able to come here is something that we've been looking forward to. So thank you so much. And My pleasure. And, yeah, it's great. So we're looking forward to, you know, your discussion or yeah, I heard you say, you know, however you want to present the information. And before we go into that, maybe we can learn a little bit about you. So I'd like to ask you if you can tell us about your, everybody has a unique connection to their passion, to what they're interested in. We're here in Science Society. So perhaps you can think back through your life where you first noticed that connection to science in your life, and that could be in your, you know, in your childhood or anywhere along your path, really. Oh, uh, well, let me see if I can keep this brief. Um, I, 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 I grew up in, uh, in Brooklyn, and I, we were very verbally oriented amongst my friends, and some of them were extremely quick-witted and uh, very funny and smart. And uh, I felt that I didn't want to make my way in the world by just being witty with words, because I felt that I really wanted to understand how the world worked, and I wanted to find some things that were sort of independent of uh, whether I was clever or smart. I wanted to understand things. And I wanted to be a physicist. And I went to graduate school to get a PhD in physics. And in particular, I was interested in, um, I read some philosophy when I was in high school. And uh, I got very interested in the uh, conception of space and time. And I realized that from a philosophical point of view, it was mostly words. And so I wanted to understand space and time from a physical reality. So I wanted to become a physicist studying uh, the physics of space and time, basically cosmology. And I went to graduate school with that intent. 
And while I was in graduate school, I got interested in the perception of space and time. There was a time in the late 60s where people were exploring various ways of, um, I might say, altering reality. And I realized that my perception of space and time really was extremely interesting. And I couldn't figure out how it related to the conception of space and time. And I wound up realizing that I really wanted to understand how the brain worked, because that's where the perception lies. And ultimately, our conception is also brain derived. And so I got very interested in neuroscience and read up like crazy. And when I went to my physics department advisor, he got very worried because he felt that the brain was too complicated. And he insisted I try and find something that was pretty simple. And I looked and I looked and I thought breathing would be a behavior which would be not only interesting and important, but relatively simple to solve. I mean, how difficult could it be to imagine how neurons would generate a rhythm? And so I started out on that path. And what I quickly found out was that it was a lot more complicated than uh, I realized. And I spent the early part of my both my thesis and postdoctoral studies and academic career sort of upsetting the, uh, the paradigms that the field was based on, uh, in part because I was not trained as a biologist. So I can ask a lot of questions that biologists were basically taught to ignore. And in asking them, I found out that a lot of the things that we had uh, used as a foundation for understanding how the brain generated breathing movements was fundamentally wrong. And so I started out on a path to try to discover that, and I'm still working on it. We made some fundamental discoveries, which hopefully I can talk about. And uh, now we're very interested not only in the fundamental aspects of it, but also how breathing can influence all sorts of behaviors like emotion and cognition. Hopefully that wasn't too long-winded, Victoria, and uh, uh, we can go on if you want. Oh, thank you. It's no, certainly not too long-winded. If we had, we were also saying, you know, if we had a whole weekend, <laughs> I'm sure that you could find lots of things that would that would be fascinating and and really um, would make everybody want to go deeper into those things as well. It was it's interesting to hear that there was that your advisor had helped you to um, you know focus your study. And, and it's interesting, you know, people that, that you had um, sort of driving your path was your own curiosity and, and then the people along your way. So it's, it's, it's a beautiful thing that, that, you know, that was sort of a, you know, that advisor guided you to, to and then you discovered breathing on your own. I, I felt I was very lucky in, in finding it because one of the, the great things is if you can find a thing that can occupy your time that you love doing. When people come to me and are interested in working in my lab, I say you can work for a while, but if you find out that it's not really interesting for you, that you don't wake up in the morning thinking about it and go home late at night thinking about it, then it's too tough a problem. But if you pat it, it's a wonderful, uh, it's a wonderful life. And I've been really very privileged that I enjoy doing it. I'm curious. I 
can't wait to think about the problems. I have other things in my life, of course, but it's not like it's drudgery. It's something that, that just keeps me constantly motivated. And I think anyone listening to this who's thinking about doing science, make sure you choose a problem that you find you care about, because if you don't care about it, you're not going to be able to do it well enough. Jack, thank you. And it's that's a really nice example of how these rooms are so useful for people because we don't always know, you know, things aren't always linear and we don't always know what we're going to be able to take away from an experience. And so you sharing that, which you noticed about what is a passion that will really speak to you and how to tell, that's valuable information. You know, when we're at a crossroads or wondering where shall I put my time? And, mm -hmm. and so thank you. Thank you for sharing that. So then can you take us along a path of how you've come to this work? I know you, you brought us up to um, studying breath, but this particular work that you're sharing today from where we left off, can you bring us um, up to so, so in order to study how the brain is generating breathing rhythm, we needed to find where the engine was. So, you know, if you have a car and a car moves forward, if you want to understand how the car works, you need to know where the engine is. And uh, that may or may not be obvious, depending on what car you're looking at. You know, it could be in the front of the car, it could be in the back of the car, or it could be an electric vehicle, which has no uh, typical engine. It's a very special kind of way of looking at it. And so we looked at breathing. We said, okay, where is the engine for breathing? And uh, people had a general idea, probably going back thousands of years, certainly in Western culture, that it was somewhere in a region of the nervous system we call the brain stem, which is just uh, north of the spinal cord and below the big part of the head, the, the cortex. And it's a very important part of the entire nervous system because a lot of very vital functions with respect to controlling the body of the air, the, the heart gets regulated there, your uh, vocalization takes place there, your sensory processing for hearing is taking place there, swallowing, chewing, and of course breathing are all taking place in the brainstem. And, but the thing is the brainstem is a pretty big place and we wanted to figure out where in the brainstem was happening. And we we did an experiment that actually had a history that went back to the early part of uh, sort of the early Renaissance uh, rebirth of neuroscience, where French neuroscientists in the late uh, 19th, 18th century were trying to look for where in the body breathing rhythm came from, because that was the, what they called the noe vital, the note of life was where breathing is coming from, because if you stop breathing, you're not alive. And the experiment they did was they uh, took uh, rabbits and they uh, anesthetized them and they put uh, uh, blunt spatulas to sort of maybe mash, maybe essentially cut the brain, the brain and find out where the vital structures were. And they came to the conclusion that when they cut in the brainstem, they could stop breathing. And so they concluded that the critical structures were in the brainstem, but they weren't able to sort of delineate it further. We were able to reproduce that, but instead of using a blunt spatula, 
we're able to take the brainstem of um, newborn rats, which were uh, anesthetized, and we then put these brainstems in a special device that allowed us to take very, very thin slices away from the brainstem. And what we found is that as we removed tissue from the brainstem, there was no change in the breathing rhythm coming from the brainstem. That is, the rhythm itself didn't need the body. The rhythm itself came from the, the nervous system in the brainstem. But where in the brainstem, we found by basically removing parts, and eventually we came to a very, very limited part of the brainstem where the rhythm was being generated. And then we were able to verify this in, um, in intact anesthetized animals that this critical site was generating breathing rhythm. And it actually had no name in any of the atlases, and we took the prerogative to name it. We had previously named another structure in the brainstem called the Butzinger complex. And Butzinger is not a famous neuroanatomist. Butzinger is an appellation of uh, German wine where we had a meeting and the wine we were drinking was Butzinger wine. And so we named this region after that wine. But that region turned out not to be the place where the rhythm was being generated. The rhythm was being generated just close to that. So we call this region that is generating the breathing rhythm we called it the pre-Butzinger complex, and that name is stuck. And uh, that is a, a site which has now been verified in humans as critical for generating the breathing rhythm. So now we know where the principal engine for breathing is, and it allowed us then to begin to try and dissect that to find out what are the mechanisms, how is the rhythm generated, and how is that rhythm transmitted from the prebutzinger complex, ultimately you have to, it has to go to muscles that are uh, in the rib cage and the diaphragm, which are gonna expand the thorax. So that's when you expand the thorax, the lungs expand and you have insp inspiration. And when those muscles relax, the rib cage and diaphragm relax back to their resting position and you get expiration. So we have to, be concerned not only how the rhythm is generated, but how that signal gets out to the muscle and how it's regulated, because you want to make sure that you have enough oxygen for your metabolic needs over, over a broad range of metabolism, ranging from rest to very high levels of exercise. And you want to make sure that you also ex exhale the carbon dioxide, which is produced by or what's called aerobic metabolism. So you're using oxygen, you're producing CO2, you have to get rid of that CO2 at the rate you're producing it, because if you don't do that, you'll throw all cellular and uh, organ function out of whack if there's too much or too little CO2, because CO2 carbon dioxide is very critical in re regulating the acid-base balance of the blood and the Every cell in the body depends very critically on having a proper level of acid base. And too much or too little CO2 will throw that off. So if you have too little CO2, it slows the breathing down so CO2 can build up. If you have too much CO2, 
then you will increase the ventilation to bring your CO2 down. So an important, important question is then, how are oxygen and carbon dioxide influencing this engine for generating breathing so that your breathing pattern is appropriate to regulate both oxygen and carbon dioxide? Um, I hope I wasn't too technical there, but certainly I can elaborate further if you have any more questions. No, no, certainly not. I, I would just like to say at this point, I'm going up and let you determine the flow of this discussion. And at some point, um, guests may put questions in the chat or may even want to come up here and ask you some questions as well. So I'm just going to pass the mic straight back to you and leave it there. So thank you very okay, much. Okay, so, so I posted some slides, and uh, maybe I can refer to some of the slides. So in the first set of slides, if you look at the, I think it's about the fifth slide, it's a picture of a watch face. And um, I started out, as I said, thinking breathing was going to be a relatively trivial problem. That is, it's simple to think about how neurons could generate a rhythm. And so if you look at a watch, and unfortunately the, uh, the, the uh, thing that's posted in a clubhouse may not be animated, so I'll just have to give a verbal description. So you have a, a watch, which is a simple oscillator, okay? You have a hand which goes around and around, so that's an oscillation. And you might think, well, it's simple to drive that. All I need is a coil, and as the coil uncoils, it'll move the hand around. But we know that's not what the interior of a mechanical watch looks like. Uh, if you uh, and I, uh, if you can animate this uh, PowerPoint, I would just go online and look at an image of a mechanical watch, and you see all these gears. There's lots of gears. Why do you have all these gears to generate something that's just a simple going round and round? Well, the watch has to be accurate, it has to be precise, it has to be robust in case of shock. You have to be able to change the time if you need to change the time. There are all these things going on, and to fit all those things, particularly in a handheld watch, uh, is pretty complicated. You need lots and lots of gear, so it's not just simply something uncoiling. And it's the same thing with breathing, because breathing is not simply like a bellows, which you just expand and contract. You have to it has to be robust. You take about between 600 million and a billion breaths in a normal human lifetime. It has to be reliable. In fact, breathing starts before we're born. It starts in the third trimester, and that's essential because you have to be breathing as soon as you are born, and it, that's not the time to figure out how to do it. The circuits have to get wired up properly, and the way they get wired up properly is during the third trimester, there are what are called fetal breathing movements, where even though there's no air being exchanged, there's movement of the respiratory muscle, there's mechanical uh, actions on the developing lung, which is critical for the lung to develop properly. So that's all happening in utero. And so when you're born, you take that first breath and it's been there for the rest of your life for um, up to maybe a billion times. It has to be extremely labile. So, you know, things that are robust don't have to be labile. In other words, for example, if I want something robust, I can imagine a block of concrete just sitting on the ground. 
it's robust because no matter what I do, it's not going anywhere. But if I want it to be labile, if I want to move it around, well, that's a serious uh, challenge. And uh, the way you could imagine doing it is you put wheels underneath the concrete block, but that's not a trivial uh, sol solution. Nature had to figure out how to make this system both robust and very labile. And what I mean by very labile is that at rest, you're consuming about 250 milliliters of oxygen per minute. That's about the volume of your fist. That's how much oxygen your body is using every minute. Now, your breathing at rest is sufficient to take in enough air that you can extract 250 milliliters per minute from that. But if you get up and just simply walk down the block, you're suddenly consuming three times as much oxygen per minute, 750 milliliters per minute of oxygen, just to walk down the block. Now, the reservoir that you have of oxygen in your blood is not a lot. It's only about a thousand milliliters, one liter of oxygen. So you have to breathe continuously. You don't have a big reservoir to dip into. So now if you go from 250 per minute to 750, if you don't increase the ventilation, you're gonna deplete the oxygen in your blood to the point where it won't be able to sustain brain function, you would pass out. So your, your breathing basically increases the instant you step stand up to walk. In fact, it increases just as you're thinking about getting up. And then your ventilation increases very quickly. So that's pretty amazing. And it's very quick, but the brain has to be able to do that. Um, it has to be very long lasting. It also has to fit in with a whole variety of other things which involve the movement of air. The ability to speak, for example, or if you're a non-human mammal, the ability to phonate, to generate sounds. I have to control my breathing. I have constant expiratory airflow over my vocal cords. And we don't notice it, but when someone is talking, you say, oh, gee, they won't stop. But they actually do stop. They stop and take inspiratory efforts during a long speech, or you go listen to, a, go to the opera, you listen to an aria, and they seem like they're, uh, they're exhaling continuously over minutes. But if you listen carefully, they're inhaling. So now I have to adjust the behavior to be able to maintain oxygen and get rid of CO2 while I'm doing a completely different behavior for nation. We have all these reflexes. We have coughing, we have sneezing, um, we have yawning. All those also being generated by the same muscles. And so the circuits that are involved in generating the normal breathing have to be able to reconfigure themselves for these other behaviors. On top of that, we now know that breathing can have a profound influence on all sorts of emotional and cognitive functions. And we can regulate breathing to have an effect on that. You take a single deep breath and it's relaxing. We all do that if you're uh, about to participate in some athletic event and you're at the starting line or uh, trying to hit a baseball or doing something that's in some sort of match. Beforehand, you take a deep breath and it relaxes you. And we also know that 
and this goes back thousands of years, that breathing practice and things like yoga uh, are very um, powerful in both short-term effects on emotional and cognitive state, but also long-term effects. So breathing practice over a period of time can reduce anxiety, can have positive effects on reducing depression, and that comes directly from breathing. And one of the things we're trying to discover what the mechanisms are that breathing is affecting this. Um, I'm open to uh, more questions. I think I, oh, well, let me see what I have here in my slide deck. Um, yeah. Uh, so, so, oh, I'm sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, no. Uh, uh, well, yeah, I'll, I'll just ask a quick question and then, and then continue. Like, um, the, is there a specific, there's a specific neuron type, right, that, um, that is necessary for breathing patterns. Is there, like, um, can you lose one half of the brain, basically, of the spinal cord and, and still breathe well enough? Like, do we need both sides or are we fine using just one hemisphere of the brain in that Okay. Case? All right. All right. Now, we're not talking about the brain. We're talking about the brain stem. Yes. So not, we're not talking about two hemispheres and we're not talking about the spinal cord. The engine is in the brain stem. Now, one thing about injury to the brain stem is if you get injury to the spinal cord, depending on where it is, it's usually survivable, but there'll be a loss of function. If you get injury to the cortex, like a stroke, you may, if it's localized, you may lose some function, but once again, they're often very survivable. If you get injury to the brain stem, it often is very serious, and the, um, there's very high likelihood of morbidity and mortality because there are so many vital functions which are within the brain stem, uh, and one of which is breathing. And so if you get a severe damage to the brain stem, you can, uh, uh, it, it can totally disrupt your breathing pattern to the point that it's not survivable. Now, we did an experiment in rats. We were able to slowly ablate that is, remove neurons in the prebutsinger complex. And what we found is that removing up to about half of those neurons, the rats continue to breathe quite well. If you got beyond half, there was a significant deterioration of breathing pattern. And as more and more of those neurons were removed, the breathing pattern deteriorated more and more to the point that it was not survivable. Now, in humans, uh, if you look in Parkinson's disease, at the end stages of Parkinson's disease, individuals have serious problems of breathing during sleep, but they can breathe quite normally during wakefulness. But when they fall asleep, they have serious problems uh, breathing. There is another neurodegenerative disease called multiple system atrophy, where similarly they have uh, 
they're capable of breathing during wakefulness, but they have ex extraordinary difficulty breathing during sleep. So of course, this is going to disrupt the breathing, the sleep cycle, which in and of itself will have uh, issues with respect to maintaining body function. Uh, in these individuals, when they get to loss, when, when, okay, let me backtrack a bit. When you look in the pre-Butzinger complex of individuals who died at the end stages of Parkinson's disease, and you compare them with individuals who are same age, same weight, but did not die of neurodegenerative disease, but died of other causes, there's a loss of about 60% of the neurons in pre-Butzinger complex. So at the time of death of Parkinson's disease, uh, there's severe loss of pre-Butzinger neurons, and that's associated with severe problems of breathing during sleep. In multiple system atrophy, it can get the high, as high as 90% of those neurons are gone in people who died with multiple system atrophy. And therefore, they have breathing, breathing problems. So our best guess is that during a healthy life, that there might be some loss of these neurons. They seem to be extremely robust. But you seem to be able to maintain reasonably good breathing function up to loss of about half. If you get beyond half, you start to have breathing problems uh, during sleep. And one of the things that we're interested in, but we have not been able to do the study, is to find out uh, as people die, healthy people die of old age, what the status of their pre-Butzinger complex is when someone who is 90, 100 years old, when they die, what percentage of pre-Butzinger neurons are still alive? And is that correlated with their longevity? Well, thank you. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to ask like some general audience question that I can think of to understand and like the general mechanism. And then does um, the monitoring of oxygen also happen in the same brain region and then changes the rhythm? And, and how, how does it work that um, the neurons kind of um, like, how does the information pass? Is it calcium signaling? Um, you know, um, what, how, how does the oxygen monitoring work and how does it then affect the, the cells? Um, okay, it's a good question. Okay, so this principal sensing of oxygen is not in the brain itself. It's in the carotid bodies which are at the bifurcation of the carotid artery just as it's entering the brain. So the carotid arteries are these very large vessels coming from the heart, going into the brain. And if you uh, feel just under your earlobe, uh, your carotid arteries are located just there. And they're very large vessels. And there's a sort of a bifurcation that splits into two. And at that point, there are special sensors in a structure called the carotid bodies. And these sense oxygen levels. Now, because the brain is the organ in the body which is most sensitive to oxygen deprivation, in order to 
maintain a healthy body, you got to pay the most attention to oxygen levels in the brain. So having a sensor and a major uh, supply of oxygen to the brain that is in the carotid arteries is a good way of knowing what the oxygen level that the brain is experiencing. Uh, and the mechanism by which the, and, and the Nobel Prize was given to uh, Hamans in 1939 for this discovery, the discovery that the carotid bodies were indeed the source of oxygen sensing that was essential to regulate breathing. The signal from the carotid bodies passes into the brain by the, what's called the no-dose ganglia through the glossopharyngeal nerve, which is the ninth cranial nerve, entering into the brainstem in the region of the solitary tract, which is not the prebutzinger. From there, it gets relayed to the prebutzinger. So the mechanism for sensing of oxygen is, believe it or not, still controversial. There are a variety of ideas about what cellular mechanisms are actually sensing oxygen and how they get transformed into a signal that gets propagated down the carotid sinus nerve and ultimately into the brain. Once it gets into the solitary tract, the signaling there is, as you might say, conventional. It's conventional synaptic input. And that input goes from the solitary tract into prebutzinger, and at which point, depending on the amount of activity that's coming in, will either will regulate both the frequency and amplitude of the, the breathing rhythm. Carbon dioxide, by contrast, appears to be principally sensed within the brain itself. Uh, here again, there's some controversy, but there's general agreement that the ventral surface of the brainstem, that is the part of the brainstem that would face the front of the body, uh, at its surface, has special receptors for sensing carbon dioxide. And whether they're sensing carbon dioxide directly or pH or acid base is a matter of some controversy. But this, once again, the signal related to uh, acid base and carbon dioxide is within the brain, which is very important because the brain is extraordinarily sensitive to its acid base status. And so having a sensor in the brain makes a lot of evolutionary sense. And the signal goes from there in a region called the parafacial, that is around the facial nucleus, projecting nearby to the prebutzinger complex where it's going to regulate uh, both the frequency and depth of uh, breathing. And when the signal gets strong enough, you not only generate inspiratory movements, so at rest, your inspiratory movements are active. That is, your diaphragm contracts, your in external intercostal muscles contract, that expands the thorax, get inspiration, and then you relax. Expiration is passive at rest. However, when you have to increase your ventilation significantly, expiration becomes active. That is, you start activating the expiratory muscles, which include the abdominal muscles, where your abdominal muscles contract, that squeezes, um, pushes the diaphragm up, squeezing the lung, and your internal intercostal muscles, that is the muscles between the rib cage, they pull the rib cage down and in, and that also activates expiratory efforts. So here's a tie between 
and need for increasing ventilation because of the low oxygen, high CO2, to increasing uh, inspiration through either both frequency and amplitude, but also increasing expiratory effort to allow more ventilation per minute to uh, increase the amount of gas exchange to get more oxygen in and blow more off more CO2. Well, thank you for that explanation. Um, that was really um, wonderful. And so to get back kind of how breathing patterns influence emotion you've shown that um, that there are various connections to uh, the nucleus corylaeus and uh, um, amygdala and then other people showed um, influence on uh, blood pressure and um, and the heart uh, rhythm so since we know that connection is there is there any known uh, factor that let's say people with asthma are their emotions influenced by their probably different breathing pattern and also probably CO2 levels vary during asthma attacks um, are there studies showing that or is that still something ongoing or let's say people with long COVID maybe um, are their emotions kind of influenced by that and maybe then also their mental health state? Um, this is a complicated problem and it's very difficult to disentangle all the changes associated, for example, with uh, long COVID or asthma with how much of that is due to any changes that might be occurring during breathing or due to some other aspects of it. You know, when, when someone is having an asthma attack, they have a lot of stress because of the difficulty in breathing. And that stress, irrespective of the changes in breathing pattern, in and of itself can cause changes in emotional and cognitive state. And to distinguish that from the breathing changes that result, uh, I don't know of any research that's been able to surmount that that confound. It's pretty. It's been pretty difficult. I think on the other side, um, where one is able to volitionally change their breathing pattern, I think the data is fairly clear that um, changing your breathing pattern can have profound, uh, mostly positive effects on your emotional state. Uh, and it doesn't have to be a clinically diagnosable emotional state. I mean, it could just be that you're a little bit stressed, you're a little bit anxious, um, and changing your breathing pattern in some structured way uh, seems to be, uh, there's good data that it's very helpful. And I, I have to say, and I, I don't want this to be misunderstood, this is not something that's a recent discovery. I mean, we've known this from... Eastern cultures and yoga and meditation for basically thousands of years. Uh, the recent renaissance in uh, looking at breathing, I think, is an outgrowth of the uh, recognition of the utility of uh, meditation uh, in dealing with all sorts of uh, fundamental problems that in Western society we've probably been over-treating with pharmacological treatments. And uh, here we have mechanisms that we can 
uh, take advantage of in our own bodies that are not requiring uh, any drugs and have many fewer side effects and definitely benefit. Now, one might argue, and I have to say I once felt this way, that the effects of breathing practice or breathing in meditation could be a placebo effect. That is, if you believe it's going to be helpful, then maybe it does become helpful. Uh, and know that the placebo effect is very, very powerful. If you believe a drug is going to work or some manipulation is going to work, that can go a long way to getting a positive result, even though the mechanism has nothing to do with the specifics that has to do with the suggestion that uh, you're going to get an improvement. We have spent a lot of time lately and after about three years succeeded in being able to get mice to breathe slowly on command. Our idea being is that if we could get mice to breathe slowly on command, basically mimicking certain types of breathing practice, then we could ask the question, does this have an effect on their emotional state? If it doesn't, then you might conclude that maybe breathing practice is placebo. But if it does, then uh, since, as far as I can tell, our mice don't believe in placebo effects, uh, that it's a genuine phenomena that uh, we need to study further. So we've now uh, uh, developed a preparation where we can get mice to breathe slowly. Well, these are awake mice. They're put in a chamber and they are unstressed and we can get them to breathe much slower, about 10 times slower than normal. And from all the measures we can make, they seem to be quite uh, content when we do this, and we do it for a half an hour a day uh, for four weeks. So it's basically like a human doing a breathing practice for a month. And then we test, then we've tested the mice. This is a preliminary study. We tested the mice on a standard measure of fear. So psychologists have been, been studying fear in rodents for a long time. And they've developed a very good test to look at fear in rodents. And when we look at uh, mice put through this protocol compared to mice that we do everything the same, these are control mice, except their breathing doesn't slow down, we find that the mice that went through the breathing practice for four weeks were much less fearful. We're in the process of writing this paper up, but I think that I'm comfortable in saying that uh, the results are, are pretty strong. And what they say are, are two things. One is that breathing practice or the effect of slow breathing on emotional state is not a placebo effect. It's an effect seen in um, in rodents, and uh, therefore it's not a placebo. And secondly, we now have a way of 
studying what the mechanisms are. Is it due to uh, olfactory input? Is it due to input from pre-Butzinger complex? Is it due to the blood gases? Is it due to olfaction? That is, things coming through the the nose because air is flowing in and out of the nose with the respiratory cycle. So we can get down to that and, and hopefully understand enough that we can see if we can optimize protocols for helping people with uh, dealing with various emotional states. Well, thank you so much for that answer. And these are amazing results. And I'm really curious to, to follow the research and also if plasticity changes are happening. So um, thank you so much. And Nick, you um, flashed your microphone. Please go ahead. Hey, Jack. It's uh, Nick Burgraff. Hey, Nick. Hey. <laughs> uh, I had a question, or I guess I was interested to hear your take on it. When you're talking about you know, the, the complexity of untangling the relationship between emotion and breathing, um, you know, a, a lot of that becomes more complex when we try to study it in the humans versus the rodents, because obviously, <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, we know so much about the Prebotzinger complex and its interactions in the rodents, and of course, still uncovering much, much more. But what do you think is the pathway to bringing some of that into being able to study it in the human? Or is it more beneficial, at least in the short term, like you're doing right now with the slow breathing to bring some of the, the human emotion states into the rodent model? Well, we, we've been working with uh, Helen Levretsky, who's a professor of psychiatry at UCLA, who in treating with patients uses um, breathing practice. And she also has a lot of studies using brain imaging. And we are trying to put together a center for breathing in motion where we have a dialogue between those of us looking at mechanisms in uh, non-human animals, particularly rodents, and humans. And so the kinds of experiments you can do in humans are, are more limited, but you can focus on, for example, take an individual who is diagnosed clinically as anxious. You put them through several weeks of a particular breathing practice, and you compare the imaging and activity in various parts of their brains associated with uh, uh, anxiety, depression, whatever the, uh, their clinical diagnosis is. And we can see whether activity in those regions are changing. Now, to focus on this, we have a project to map in rodents the ascending projections from pre-Butzinger through places like locus aureus and parabrachial nucleus through uh, into the cortex to see whether we can identify regions that would be good focal points for studying uh, uh, doing human imaging. Um, so I think that that's one way of, of going about it. And I think until you have some results like that in hand, I think it might be difficult to, uh, to pursue it further. But, and, and I should say, I should add another thing is that unfortunately imaging of human brainstem is very difficult. The structures are small and there are 
uh, significant movement artifact with every heartbeat and every breath. And it takes a lot of uh, controls in order to get uh, a reasonable image. And the spatial resolution is not yet sufficient to really disentangle some of the structures. Uh, and Nick, does that really, does that address your question? Oh, absolutely. And then if I could, just a quick follow-up, um, you know, uh, especially after, you know, our, our meeting in, in Japan, you know, when we talk about some of the more basic mechanisms of rhythm generation, whether it be synchrony or group hype, group hypothesis, or it's group pacemaker hypotheses and all of these different hypotheses, um, you know, a lot of that is either done in modeling or rodents as well. And do you think bringing that basic rhythm generation type of study into the human is something that is necessary? Or do you think that most of the, the rodent mechanisms are assumed to be, you know, well enough conserved in the human that we should jump to the more complex emotional interactions? Uh, I am loath to stipulate that what we find in rodents is easy to identify an equivalent in humans. Uh, for example, when you look at the upper airways, in rodents, their upper airways are fairly straight. In humans, there's basically a right angle. And there are all these functions that are going on in the upper airways that have required a significant amount of uh, re-engineering as humans went from being four-legged creatures, as, as mammals went from being four-legged creatures, to primates and bipedal and uh, having an airway which goes at a right angle. So there, there are lots of changes which are going on. And for example, with sleep apnea, you basically don't get sleep apnea in rodents because they don't have a con uh, airways constructed like ours are constructed. So I think one has, one has to be a little bit careful. I think there are ways to get at what may be happening in humans, but not necessarily by studying uh, uh, patients. I think we've underutilized the study of postmortem tissue. So, for example, you have individuals who have had severe sleep apnea or have had um, various neurodegenerative diseases. I think we could do a lot more work in trying to understand what the associated changes are in regions that we believe are, are relate to pre-Butzinger, parafacial, and whatnot. And I think that could be extremely illuminating about what's going on in, the, in humans with respect to the control of breathing and how that might affect other states. Uh, thank you. Yeah, thank you. I wanted to follow up a little bit about the anxiety-related study, um, if that's okay. Um, you, did you... Because we were talking now to translate this to humans. Um, I don't know if, you, if this is ongoing or something you're planning to probably look at uh, in amygdala, if activity, maybe um, excitability uh, changes in the slice. And then, but I would assume that translating this to humans, we have to additionally look also into prefrontal cortex area since, you know, fear and anxiety in humans is kind of a different um, higher versus lower order brain region related 
emotion like there's maybe a bigger difference so do you think um that makes sense or um yeah thank you well in fact we, we are trying to do this we are we are proposing to do or my colleagues are proposing to do basically whole brain imaging what we hope to do with the neuroanatomical studies is to try and find regions to focus on to get higher resolution. So for example, it, and the thing is the places that we want to look at first are the places that have direct projections from the brainstem breathing centers to amygdala, to prefrontal cortex and whatnot. Because here again, we want to disentangle what breathing is doing versus the overall change in state. So if someone is uh, anxious, for example, to have a certain uh, uh, brain state, if they become less anxious, regardless of the reason, they're gonna have a different brain state. So the question is, if we engage in a breathing practice, what part of that transition in brain state is explicitly due to the breathing practice? And this is part of the challenge of doing uh, the human studies in the absence of a lot of information about the details, for example, the connectivity. And we're hoping that we can get some of that information from our studies in rodents. And do you, in rodents, do you plan also to look at the glia? Because I would assume that the glia probably, you know, it's more and more, we know more and more information that glia are more and more involved in actual signaling, amplifying signals and so on so are you also and probably measuring also acidity levels and so on so are you planning to also look at the glia i i have to be a little bit careful here i am i certainly uh, subscribe to the importance of glia given the effects that you can see with even as, as just a few breaths on emotional state I tend to favor that the glia are probably not directly involved at that level. Now, when we talk about a breathing practice, which is sustained over time, involved, and you get real plastic changes in the nervous system, it's certainly a reasonable to conjecture that the glia are also playing a role. But for the time being, we have our, handful, our hands full trying to understand what the basis is in terms of just neural activity. Yeah, I see. Yeah, that makes sense. But I was thinking that if you make a longer term connection to like healthier ways of living, like to long term health, I guess the glia would be connecting more to the immune system, inflammation states, maybe, I don't know, but maybe I'm I'm going way too far. And I saw Eli, you uh, unmuted, so please go ahead. Thank you. Yeah, so so there are a couple of, um, that raises a couple of related issues um, uh, connected to long COVID. Um, as, as I'm sure you know, uh, um, one of the possible uh, effects of, of COVID is dysautonomia. And... Uh, um, in addition, in long COVID, um, it's it's not a 100% marker, but it, it 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 appears to be a pretty decent marker. Um, is elevated cortisol, which of course can be uh, a result of, of stress or anxiety. 
Um, so first of all, I, I'm, I'm wondering if, if you uh, um, think that there could be a, a connection uh, simply um, due to uh, kind of, you know, Im impaired uh, regulation of breathing, uh, you know, before you would necessarily call it dysautonomia, but it's kind of like on the spectrum on the way there uh, is, is the first uh, um, issue. And then there's, there's another one after that. Um, I'm a little reluctant to really say very much about this because this is really new territory for uh, not just for me, but I think for uh, um, understanding the role of breathing in non-breathing related functions. And then disentangling something like long COVID, which is going to affect uh, a lot of cells, both in the brain and outside the brain, to lay down a particular causal path between effects on breathing uh, inducing some of the changes that you see. Uh, I think it's entirely open to speculation. I think I tend to focus on things which I see are attractable experimentally. And to be candid, I'm not sure I see what a uh, clear-cut experiment would be that would disentangle all the confounds. Yeah, it's it's definitely a complicated topic. Uh, also complicated, and also uh, um, uh, involving uh, um, microglia again. Um, there there have been some papers about uh, um, uh, neurodegenerative mechanisms in long COVID um, or COVID uh, relating to uh, glia. Or microglia causing um, damage to uh, dendritic uh, or synapses. Um, in other words, uh, causing uh, dendrites to lose synapses. Um, to the extent, and this is of course another open question, but to the extent that um, a, a pathway such as that might underlie uh, dysautonomia. Um, do you have any intuitions on whether that kind of damage mechanism, as opposed to losing entire neurons, um, might be kind of might might offer um, uh, approaches to to reestablishing synapses when when the neurons are still there? I, you know, I think. No, I don't have any particular opinion or bias. I think right now it's an open game, and I think we have very little data to uh, uh, distinguish amongst the various possibilities. I wish I could be more informative, but I, um, I just don't know. Well, that, that is certainly a valid answer, and I think a lot of people would like to know yeah. a lot more. Yeah, this is, I get that, that I get. Yeah, thank you so much um, for those questions. Do you think that having all this data from Apple Watches with breathing patterns during sleep and awake and oxygen levels that can be monitored and heart rate levels at the same time, do you think those, pro I don't know, are those 
if you ask Apple, would they give you data sets and would that be helpful for like a large population type of public health um, approach to see how different breathing patterns long term and people kind of affect health and, and, and cognition maybe? Uh, well, the Apple, I mean, the Apple Watch, the Aura Ring and whatnot give a lot of very useful information, but about breathing, uh, all they basically give is breathing frequency, which is uh, only one variable which can be uh, important to know. So I think that the information that these devices get right now is too limited. Uh, it's possible that someone could sort through that data and find something interesting, but I uh, I'm not so sanguine that would be the case. Um, and to be quite candid, this is way beyond my pay grade. Um, I, uh, I wouldn't even know how to design a study to, to get at that. So lots of people interested in this. There's a lot of people now trying to explore the relationship between breathing and disease and emotion and whatnot. But uh, that... Uh, I, and every once in a while, you see a paper which has some uh, considerable interest about it. But it, it's a field which is just, I think, beginning to grow, and it's going to grow quickly. But uh, I'm not really have the I don't really have the expertise on it. Yeah, yeah, I think it's really interesting, and yeah, it's such an easy thing, I guess, to measure and to change. So that's why I think it's maybe <laughs> easier to create good breathing habits, habits than good eating habits, maybe. That's why people are interested. Well, well, you know, there are things like, for example, breathing through your nose rather than your mouth. I think there's good data that nasal breathing, by and large, is better than mouth breathing. Um, so uh, I think that that's a step forward. It's not that you cannot mouth breathe when you certainly have to generate high degrees of ventilation like when you're doing serious exercise, you need to get air in through your mouth. But by and large, nasal breathing seems to be better in, along various metrics. Um, and so, you know, uh, so I think there, there are some benefits which are coming from these studies, but we have a long way to go before we fully understand that. Yeah, and another thing is, did you check if it has, um, like, if you change the breathing patterns of rodents during pregnancy, if that changes maybe also the anxiety levels of the offspring? Is that something you may be interested in or have some preliminary data on that would be interesting? Well, it would, you know, this would take a significant part of the NIH budget to do all the experiments that I think. Uh, are uh, important to sort of sort out. We're very focused on a very limited set of it, but of course, if uh, you if the, the mo pregnant mother is pregnant, dam is um, less anxious. It would be interesting to know what the outcome was in terms of their offspring, not just whether they breathe slower, but are they, is there any physiological parameters changed? Are they healthier? Are they calmer? Are, are they more or less uh, cognitively able? I mean, there's lots of things that could be done. 
Yeah, please, Susan, go ahead. Thank you. And thank you for that answer. Hi, um, I was wondering if you're familiar with box breathing and if you could tell us if you are familiar, why you think it's so effective. Well, I would say my breathing practice is box breathing. Uh, my pal, Andrew Huberman, tells me that his, uh, that Navy SEALs use this when they need to calm down acutely. And I would imagine that they face more stressful uh, situations than I do day to day. Um, and it's a very simple practice. And I encourage people who want to explore breathing practice to start with box breathing because it's very, very simple. Uh, the likelihood of having a negative side effect is probably, is, is probably very, very small. And there are a variety of free apps you can get with your smartphone that make it easy to generate a practice. And so uh, for those of you not aware, box breathing basically is inhale, hold, exhale, hold. So you can imagine sort of going around a box. And uh, typically, you're, I, I do five seconds, five seconds, five seconds, five seconds. So I'm breathing now from a normal breathing rate of between 12 and 15 per minute. I'm breathing now three per minute. And I find that when I do that, it's very restorative. Either if I just do it for five minutes or 10 minutes, it's very restorative. But, you know, I, I'm an underpowered experiment. I'm just giving you my anecdotal observation. And I would encourage people who have uh, interest in trying a breathing practice to just get a breathing app and uh, try it and um, try it for one minute then two minutes then three minutes and four minutes and if you feel comfortable and if five 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 doesn't work try four 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 or three 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 and see whether or not you notice any changes well, did that answer your question yeah i mean it does because i've you know all the lot of breathing exercises either don't work or i find them not helpful but this seems to work really quickly and also i know a lot of vas try to incorporate this because it minimizes um intrusive flashbacks and i guess because it is so easy so i thought that wasn't really helpful but thank you for also um you know confirming what i thought thanks no i mean there are there are lots of breathing practices there are so many which slow down breathing like box breathing there are some which speed up box breathing there are some which when you do them can be quite taxing um and uh well, i i liken it to when somebody asks me uh i don't exercise what exercise should i do and my response is do something easy to start get up and walk or walk for five minutes then walk for 10 minutes, then walk a mile. And when you get comfortable walking, you can begin to think about other things. And uh, you then have to make a decision about what you want to optimize with your exercise. You're interested in general health, you want strength, you want endurance, and then you might pick a particular exercise. And I think it's the same thing with breathing practice, that something like box breathing is sort of like easy and you could do it and then you can Go from that and try out some other breathing exercises, which may be a little bit more challenging or may better fit your own lifestyle or temperament. 
and find something that works for you. And if it doesn't work for you, that's okay. There's, I'm not being judgmental about it, but I think you need to sort of get up off the couch and do something in order to see whether it works. Yeah, thank you so much uh, for the question. That was a really great question. Kyle, I know you had the, a question or two. Please go ahead. Yes, uh, thank you very much. Um, it's uh, amazing that you're doing this work. And uh, I heard about um, kind of your, your um, I guess, adventure to find uh, the, the engine. Um, I'm curious about whether or not you measured the body temperature um, of the animals that you were studying, and also if you noticed a holding of the breath um, at, at some points in time. Okay, so a, a lot of our advances actually came not from whole animal studies, but what are called in vitro studies. So we would take slices of the brainstem of neonatal rats that were sacrificed, and these slices contain the prebutsinger complex. So the whole animal is not there, but it's a little bit like trying to study the engine of a car. Is it easy to study it when the car is going down the highway at 60 miles an hour? but to take the engine out and put it on a table and study it outside the car. And that's what we're doing with these slices. And then once we understand the basics of the engine, we then look in whole animals, which is basically putting the engine back in the car and setting the car as it's moving down the highway. So uh, a lot of our advancements were from these slices. And then we did experiments to verify that they were occurring in intact animals that we we verified them. Um, we in an intact animal you see all sorts of breathing patterns. Uh, and as best we can tell, they all originate from the prebutsinger complex. Uh, so you have the normal breath, you have sighs, you have gas, you have coughs. They all seem to originate with prebutsinger. That's interesting. Um, thank you for that question, Kyle. And the, the question that comes up is um, that would probably be interesting uh, for everyone. Like, how does this brain region switch from just automatic breathing to um, this very uh, mindful type of breathing? And how do you think this mindful type of breathing then changes the the automatic or habit type of or unconscious subconscious breathing so okay so the breathing is an automatic function that you don't need your cortex to breathe we know that uh humans are animals that have had their uh that are quote brain dead um whereas there's no cortical function, still continue to breathe. This causes some ethical problems in the hospital with individuals who have no cortical activity continue to breathe. And so how do you uh, proceed with uh, patients like that? Uh, however, when the cortex is working, the cortex 
can directly control activity in prebutsia complex, as best we can tell. So when you slow breathe, it's being mediated by cortical inputs into pre-Butzinger. Um, and now, Victoria, what, I'm sorry, I lost the thread of your rest of your question. Oh, yeah. So, so yeah, you asked uh, the part of, you know, how basically this would intervene would be through cortical um, influencing the the neurons that are responsible for the breathing patterns and how does this habit of this let's say the box breathing um that was mentioned does it then influence longer term the regular breathing pattern that is kind of automatic oh, that is automatic um does it change it long term if you if you do that once a day, and then how does this work? Does this change? Oh, I, I don't. I don't have the data on that, so I, I don't know whether the breathing pattern changes significantly, or there are changes in blood gases that are significant. My guess is, um, my well, my general understanding is, if it changes, it's very small, um, and uh, but I I don't really have any direct data to refer to. I have read a bit about that with respect to blood pressure lowering and connection to, to uh, regimented breathing patterns that after two weeks and that there's a measurable level of drop in blood pressure. And that was, um, I'm sorry, I don't have a link right now, but it was it was um, confirmed. It was, you know, I don't know, it was American Heart Association. or Is that what you mean, Katarina? No. Well, we know, like okay, let's, let's distinguish. Well, let's, let's distinguish the, the question related to whether it was a change in breathing pattern or blood I versus, see, that's stuck. Okay. okay. I see, I see. Now, in pattern, terms of, right. in terms okay. of uh, autonomic function, heart rate is regulated by autonomic output. This is the part of the nervous system, the sympathetic and parasympathetic nervous systems. If you decrease sympathetic activity or increase parasympathetic activity, you're likely to both slow the heart rate and lower blood pressure. And it's been established probably thousands of years that meditation and breathing practice does lower blood pressure. So that, that's well established. I was addressing the issue of whether your breathing pattern changes per se, and I don't have any data on that. I'm not aware of any data on that. So um, since you, you have the, the RAT model in, in progress, um, I'm wondering if you've thought about uh, doing RNA-seq uh, to investigate the effects on metabolic pathways. To be candid, we've thought of a thousand million years of experiments. And the problem that we're facing is choosing which ones are the most important ones. So I, I don't know. The answer is yes, we've thought about it. The question is, I, we haven't really decided where we would put that experiment on the 
priority list. And my feeling is that that is an experiment that may be of more interest to people interested in metabolism than uh, people in my neck of the woods. And so there's a lot. Once this model gets published, then hopefully lots of people will begin to study all sorts of angles, including the notion of what's happening in metabolic pathways. So, um, I mean, the nice thing about RNA-seq is, is that it, it, it doesn't uh, presume much to start with other than, you know, the cells that you're sampling, uh, at least if it's done properly. And uh, so basically, I, I mean, the metabolic stuff is a subset of that that I've seen uh, um, used in, in, in various papers, looking into various conditions, including uh, the effects of COVID. But um, uh, of course, it, it goes beyond uh, metabolic pathways. And the, I mean, the nice thing is that you, you, can, you can spot signals that you would have never thought to look for. Um. I, I, I'm, I'm in total agreement with you, uh, but we haven't decided how high a priority that is because when people have done RNA-seq under just normal conditions, very little has risen to the surface of, of things that we were not otherwise aware of. So we have a lot of information that has not really driven our understanding. And what we're looking for is to experiment for experiments that are going to drive our understanding further. And uh, sure, I would love to have more data on RNA-seq, but given the time and effort that goes into doing those experiments properly, uh, it may be that we could do more important things looking at other metrics. Thanks. I had kind of a, a question about that, Jack. Um, this is Nick again. You, you know, someone had mentioned previously, um, you know, looking at some of the larger data metrics or big data type of metrics from wearables or whether it be at home spirometry or anything like that. Um, and, and you had mentioned about coming up with experiments would kind of just take up the entirety of the NIH budget for just a few experiments. Um, do you think like, trying to understand that side of the data being, you know, at home, big data type of sets uh, and wearables, you know, regardless of the quality of that data, but there's certainly an enormous amount of data that is there. Um, is that something you think that will ever be able to be utilized through like an NIH type of funding, or is it going to take a push through a private funding such as, you know, like the Allen or kind of like how Microsoft took up some of the SIDS research? Uh, Nick, this is way, way above my pay grade, and you know, I, 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 almost, I almost feel that almost anything I, I say, I'll be criticized for things I didn't mean to be criti I don't want to be criticized for. So I, I think I'm going yeah, to stay outside. I, I, think I think I'm going to stay outside that um, that issue of trying to prioritize what what should be done and what should not be done. Uh, I think sure, sure. big data, big data has proven to be very powerful, but I think until someone comes up with an observation from big data that was surprising, it's a little hard to advocate. Well, let's do it because maybe we'll discover something. Uh, to do an experiment like this properly, um, 
I don't think the wearables give you enough information. Um, and I think you'd have to design in a way that you knew enough about the individuals and their health history um, to be able to really do like a principal component analysis to try and find out what's really correlated to what. Uh, I would embrace someone doing it, and I wouldn't object to it, uh, doing it unless it, they took money from my research. Then I would object. <laughs> Perfect. Thank you. I, I have to take off here pretty soon, so I just wanted to say thanks for coming. Well, thanks for, thanks for listening in, Nick. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for your question, Nick. It was uh, remarkably like Katarina's that she asked a bit ago, and thank you, Jack, for answering that so thoroughly. It's such a, a great question. Um, you mentioned anecdotal observation and and when you were talking with Suzanne about the box breathing, I when my kids were little, I noticed that when they were engaged in what we would now call mindful, you know, when they were practicing mindfulness just uh, by default as of being kids who engage in their tasks, that their breathing slowed that you could, you could, it was, it was something that you could see and even hear that they were breathing more deeply, there was more space between each breath, and it was very evenly paced. And now I work in arts and science education, and I notice a similar thing with my students that when they're engaged in, in an um, in art activity that's making them what I would observe feel peaceful and, and really mindfully engage their whole being the exact same thing happens with their breath. Well, and yeah. well, you know, one thing we have not talked about, so I've talked about the effect of breathing on emotion. There's another aspect of this, which is the effect of emotion on breathing. And they're, they're not two sides of the same, uh, uh, the same phenomenon. The effects of emotion on breathing are a whole other set of issues that may involve similar structures or different structures. Um, I can, um, uh, let me, uh, let me talk a little bit about um, locked-in syndrome. Locked-in syndrome is the result of a major stroke in the basal part of the pons and part of the brain stem. What this does it, it cuts off all the signals coming from the cortex to most of the motor neurons of the body. So these individuals are not able to move any muscle except their eyes because the motor neurons controlling their eyes are not cut off from the cortex because they are rostral on the other side of the lesion, and they, they maintain their breathing because all the structures critical for the automatic breathing are on the other side of the lesion and don't require these descending inputs. So these people are motionless except for breathing, but they can move their eyes, typically either blink or move their eyes left and right, and they are normal intelligence. Uh, there's a great book uh, called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, about, uh, written by a, a man who had a, a ma major stroke at Lockdown Syndrome, and he basically blinked the book to his caretaker. And it's amazing 
a testimony to the human spirit that he was able to uh, be very lucid in describing what his life was like. I had colleagues who were studying a patient who had locked-in syndrome. The patient's breathing pattern was very, very regular, very robotic. They asked the patient to hold his breath. The patient couldn't hold his breath. They asked the patient to breathe faster. The patient could not breathe faster. But if they gave the patient a little bit of carbon dioxide to breathe, which would normally stimulate breathing, it stimulated breathing. So the chemical regulation of breathing uh, remained intact, and the person was able to maintain healthy levels of oxygen and carbon dioxide. And there was nothing that they could do to get the patient to change their breathing pattern. Then all of a sudden, the patient's breathing pattern changed. And they said to the patient, your breathing pattern changed. What happened? And the patient says, said, by blinking, said, you told a joke and I laughed. And it turns out whenever they told a joke that the patient found funny, the breathing pattern changed. So what this says is that there's a pathway that affects breathing that's emotional, that is not affected by this lesion, which affects the volitional part of breathing. So there's a whole pathway devoted to emotional breathing, which includes things like laughing, crying, uh, emotional sighing. And so there's this whole descending system coming from cortex and amygdala and whatnot that goes down and can affect breathing patterns. So when you say that your children, are, their breathing pattern changes, it's probably because their emotional state is something that involves being focused, uh, being calmer, and that in and of itself is now sending signals that are affecting the breathing pattern that comes down through this emotional pathway as opposed to the volitional pathway. Thank you. Yeah, go ahead, Katarina. I was just going to say that's really deep and beautiful. And and I'm thinking when we hear a joke, I can think of times when I'm really tense and, and a friend will tell a joke to make me relax or help me mm -hmm. relax. And I laugh. And just as you're saying, then my emotion changes, then my breathing changes, then I feel relaxed. So there's a loop there. So your breathing changes and that goes back and now it's going to change your emotional state, irrespective of any direct effect on, of the joke on your emotional state. Katarina, you have a comment? Oh, no, I was, I wanted to just say the same, that this is really so interesting and, um, yeah, thank you for the question and also for that answer. Um, and I, we've been, and I also wanted to mention that we've been talking, like you've been talking for an hour and a half. So I wanted to ask <laughs> if you wanted to maybe switch to something else, in your, you know, and, and get rid of us. So, um, yeah, I, I just wanted to give you a chance. Well, no, I don't want to keep your audience, your, your clubhouse captive. Uh, maybe what we can do is that uh, if there is interest in continuing the conversation, we can schedule something for some time in the future to follow issues that uh, may arise from this discussion. And um, so now may be a good time just to uh, close out. If you have any final questions, I'm happy to answer them. 
I think that's wonderful. And thank you for that suggestion because I would have asked you, maybe you could come back in the new year sometime and we can continue this discussion because it's such an interesting topic and it's like the example of a, you know, a research you do and then it opens up a whole new field and a whole new thousands of projects ideas <laughs> that you could do. So it's like, um, it's like really good port wine. I'm from port <laughs> and the, the research. So thank you for that. And thank you for taking the time. This was really wonderful. And uh, we got so many insights from it. And everyone, thanks for asking questions. Uh, suggesting questions uh, to me and um, really appreciate that and it makes I think the discussion so much more interesting um, if not just one person asks but also other people participate because then many more topics arise uh, that I wouldn't think of so thank you so much right. Jack and uh, enjoy the holidays. Well, thank you thank you very much I think it's a privilege I think what you're doing here with uh, this, uh, this type of discussion is very, very important. And uh, of, uh, it's seriously undervalued, but it's extremely valuable. And it, for me, it's a privilege to uh, have been invited to participate. So uh, best wishes to everyone for the holidays. And hopefully, we can continue this discussion sometime, sometime in the future. I'm going to sign off now. Yes. Um, thank you so thank much. You. Bye now. Thank you. Thank Thanks, Jack. you. Bye, bye, bye everyone. Bye and yeah, thank, thank you. you. That's one. Thank you for this wonderful room. And keep breathing, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> just, just do the box breathing. It can't hurt you, so just do it. And, uh, <laughs> and yeah, enjoy um, the rest of the evening, morning, or your day, wherever you are right now. And uh, if you like discussions like this, we have tomorrow another room with Dr. Cohen. He will talk about autonomous micro robots with artificial brains in them. I think this is the first paper that came out with having done this quite successfully. Uh, he will be here tomorrow at 6 p.m. EST and then we'll have uh, more rooms next week. So check out the club and the calendar and um, yeah, thank you everyone and uh, I'm closing the room in three, two, one. Bye everyone. Thank you so much.